0: Hi, I'm Jessica Lindberg, and this is the HeartStrong Podcast, where we dive into all the messiness life has to offer, the good, the bad, and the beautiful. I've spent the last decade building a powerfully resilient life through personal trauma, and I'm here to share inspiring stories of hope and purpose. Join us for a conversation about what truly makes us heartstrong. With the start of a new summer and life slowly getting back to normal, you may be looking for ways to improve yourself and live a more intentional and meaningful life. And that's why the HeartStrong Podcast is back for a mini-season with our hopeful summer series. The goal of the season is to look at life in a new way, maybe reevaluate our priorities and establish some healthier habits and embrace our new beginnings. Each episode will help you get back to business while enjoying some compelling, surprising, and heartwarming stories. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Paul Kekia. Dr. Kekia is a pediatric cardiologist and associate section chief for cardiac services and business operations at Texas Children's Hospital. I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Kekia at a pediatric cardiology conference some years back and have most recently loved following his prolific writing on the COVID pandemic. Last year, we chatted on a Facebook Live about kids in COVID, and our conversation had over 25,000 views. So I'm excited to have him on the podcast today and talk about where we are at with COVID and what he's learned as a physician and as a human from this last year. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kekia.
1: Well, thank you so much, Jessica. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah. So I'm so glad you're here. And I thought before we get started, would you just share just a little bit about yourself with our listeners?
1: Uh, sure. So uh, I, my name is Paul Kekia. I am the uh, associate section chief for critical care at Texas Children's. I run the uh, cardiac ICU and cardiac operations for the section of critical care uh, and also business operations. And uh, sitting here in Houston, where I've been for the past 10 years, but spent 10 years in St. Louis at, at WashU and St. Louis Children's Hospital. And then a few years at Loma Linda um, and then did all my training in Chicago. Northwestern and Children's Memorial, and I am born and raised in Chicago on the South Side. So uh, I never thought in a million years I'd be living in Texas, but it's been (laughs) it's been a great place to live.
0: That's awesome. So I am excited to dive into because I know people want to know all the things that you're thinking about COVID. So, but you started writing early on in the pandemic on your personal Facebook page. You you kind of walked people through what was going on, citing data in different you know, studies at the time. What? And I know people have loved it. I mean, I personally, my whole family has followed you and found it so helpful. We even text about your posts and all of that. But what prompted you to do that? Like, is that a therapeutic for you? Or are you just kind of processing the pandemic?
1: Yeah, it was very much therapeutic at first. Um, and it actually stemmed from uh, one of our faculty members right down the hall, Dr. Fernando Stein, who is the former president of the AAP. We were talking early on when we were sort of starting to decide when we're shutting down services here and all that. He said, You know, we should all really keep a journal. I'm like, Hmm. Oh, okay. Well, that's not a bad idea. So I just started, I had already started posting a little bit on Facebook. And then I said, No, I'm going to actually put this all onto a running Word document. Um, And it really was therapy for me because. I have to admit, I am a generally anxious person that tries to keep that at check at all times. Um, And diving into the unknown and then piecing away the data is the way I got through things at first, uh, Mm -hmm. along with a lot of you know, becoming more mindful and downloading some mindfulness apps and more meditation and a whole lot of exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, but it really then served a purpose. Um, and then, I mean, honestly, it was nice to hear people reaching out just like you did where it's like, Oh, this actually makes sense. And, you know, you're explaining things nicely. So that, you know, appealed to my, uh, I want to be in the spotlight, kind of <laughs> spot of my part of my personality where people are saying, "No, this is good." So uh, I kept doing it. I now have a word document that is running now, well over three hundred pages, wow. and uh, uh, like we talked about, I, I think we're I know what I'm going to do with this. Uh, where my son, who's a sophomore at UCLA, who is just an amazing writer, we have decided our father and son project this summer is to turn that writing into a co-authored novel. And that's we'll see awesome. what we do with it. Yeah, That's
0: That's, can't wait to read it. And that's really cool. I love that. Awesome. Well, before, you know, we, I knew I was going to talk to you, so I reached out to my community online and I just asked some, what people are thinking about these days. I'm a mom to three kids here, so I have my own questions, but I wanted to see what other people were talking about. So I thought um, I would mix their questions and mine and we'll see how far we get here on the podcast today. Um, but I wanted to start out talking about kids and vaccines um, and first, to talk about the clinical data for the approved Pfizer vaccine for kids twelve and up, you know what should kids get vaccinated and tell me what you're thinking about how this you know how it's been approved and just your general thoughts on kids getting vaccinated
1: yeah, so obviously, as a pediatrician, you know it is part of our makeup to love vaccines um, mm-hmm. It is part of what we do. Um, and there's good reason for it because sure. we see the greatest impact of vaccines and stamping out diseases that were killing off children's children for decades right mm-hmm. so my stance is always that vaccination is great um, the data is very clear that uh, you know children 12 and under uh, 12 and over right now it's mm-hmm. approved it's safe it works Um Actually, just today I saw moderna uh, is releasing their data that says their vaccine works just just as well and is just as safe for 12 and up um, and so my stance is always going to be that children should be vaccinated against anything we could possibly vaccinate them against right mm-hmm. it's it's protective um, you know we can talk about younger kids as it goes down you know and there are trials going on down to two years of age and, and even younger. Um, obviously, we have to wait for the data, uh, sure. but I would not uh, at all be hesitant if the data is are what I believe them to be, which is going to be good. Mm-hmm.
0: So you're saying it's safe to get your kids vaccinated. And one of the questions people have asked me, and, and, and I've thought about this too, is the fact that COVID doesn't profoundly affect kids in terms of, how, you know, sick they get. I mean, my, I have a son who's six who has muscular dystrophy who got COVID. He was exposed by a, a teacher at school or a, an adult at school, I should say. I don't know who exactly it was. You know, he had a very mild illness. He It was mostly GI for him and he was much sicker with the flu. So, you know, as a parent, you do think, well, you know, do I need to do this? Should I do this? How do you think about that?
1: Yeah, and you know what? It that This is really... Going to be a difficult thing for us to grapple with. And Mm -hmm. I think for me to sit here and say, well, I'm a pediatrician, therefore everybody should just get vaccinated. Yeah, Yeah. that's that's absolute. But let's do exactly what you did. Let's pick it apart a little bit and let's be fair to each other and say, um, yeah, I can't easily come up with an argument to say, well, If I'm telling you that you shouldn't fear not having a mask on your child when they're five, you shouldn't fear going to school because COVID is relatively sparing, thank God, for that generation, and then Mm -hmm. turn around and say you absolutely should vaccinate them. It's a difficult kind of argument to make rhetorically. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me just preface this also by saying that if my son was five years of age and the vaccine is approved for him, I would absolutely get him a vaccine. So that, mm-hmm. let's just, that, I don't want that to be uh, hesitant whatsoever. Yeah. But that is based on my idea of saying, well, the risk of the vaccine is so infinitely small. Yes, the risk of COVID is small, but it's higher than the risk of the vaccine. And so why wouldn't I want to set him up for protection against something that I know I could protect him against? Mm -hmm. Um, while we have seen very few incidents of severe COVID, it's not zero. It's never going to be zero, Mm -hmm. but I still land on the side of even one that's preventable from an exceedingly safe vaccine. I I should jump at that as a parent, Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. but that's a
1: lot of emotion. And and, uh, like I said, it's, it's hard to make that now when you get into high school age you get a little bit older that's that's different right because those kids do actually get impacted more they get impacted more from misc and all those things that would be prevented but yeah it this is this is going to be an ongoing discussion there's no doubt
0: Mm -hmm. i the parents that i've talked to just in my community at even you know parents that my kids play sports with they're like i got the vaccine and i'm all about getting it for myself but i'm not sure about my kids So that seems to be the sentiment because I've asked a lot of people. And so I just think it is an interesting conversation that we're going to have to have. What do you think about, though, you know, personally, when my choice to get vaccinated was because I believed in the vaccines, but also because I have a special needs child and if I got sick you know, who's going to take care of him? Or if I had long COVID, you know, problems that lasted for months, who would take care of me? You know, I mean, I couldn't take care of my son. And I have parents that I don't want to get sick, you know, so it was more of a community family decision, I think. Um, Do you think that parents could potentially think that way for their kids too, in terms of them bringing it home from school or taking it to daycare or sports?
1: Yeah, I I think that that's the the key. And you look at for example, the numbers throughout everywhere that has been heavily vaccinated, the UK and Israel are great examples. The numbers of children are less vaccinated are less mm-hmm. than what we even have here. They they're they're slower on delivering them to the even the 12-year-olds and up. And yet the numbers across the board are plummeting for both mm-hmm. of them in terms of cases. So yeah, there's a community factor. I and this you know, I don't know how to say this without I'm, I'm going to probably make somebody upset at some level. But if we had 100% vaccine uptake in the 12 years of age and over, I'm I'm willing to say, well, let's reexamine the younger kids because mm. maybe it's not all that necessary because we're going to stamp this thing out, um, or at least approach it in a discussion point of saying. If you are more at risk, if you're living in a community setting that is more at risk, then you should consider the vaccine. But instead of just, the, the absolutes are never the right thing to say. You must absolutely do this at all times, and you, or you must never do this, are never the right answer. Let's get a little nuanced and let's give each other some grace.
0: So there has been some recent data on the vaccine allegedly being related to myocarditis or inflammation in the heart in youth and young adults. And I'm just wondering what you think about that, and if you could just break that down for us a little bit.
1: Yeah, sure. And I, I think, first of all, I'm just going to put it right out there that this has been overplayed by the media. Now, second, let's be very careful about our, our discussion of what the word means. So myocarditis is just simply an inflammation of the, the heart cells, the myocytes. And we usually say that that's from infection, like a viral myocarditis. Um, That is not what's going on with the vaccines um, that was reported. What is going on is that very few um, and of truly documented cases, the number is less than 100 cases out of somewhere in the neighborhood. If we look at where the reports come, and that's Israel and the United States are the ones that are reporting it. um, There are about 300 million vaccines delivered in people. Uh, in those two countries, so we're talking about less than a hundred out of three hundred million doses. So you know as i I really do believe that the numbers are showing just the the fact that this myocarditis entity um, associated with the vaccines or not associated with the vaccines are really just let's just keep perspective of how small those numbers are, right? So if we say, well, they're being investigated by the CDC here in the U.S. and there's been a, a large investigation of very few cases in Israel. Um, and so if we total up both of those because of the CDC's sort of cryptic message of a few. And then uh, reports out of Israel that are about 62 cases. And then there are about 14 cases in Israel. Um, in the U.S. in a military base uh, or a military uh, application of the uh, vaccine. So all told, we're still talking about less than 100 cases out of about 300 million people dosed with this vaccine. So the numbers are insanely small. Um, Mm -hmm. When we know that the rate of uh, myocarditis, if you want to call it that, in the general population in the United States Um, is at least 10 times that in any given year, uh, just randomly occurring. So it's really unclear whether this is related to the vaccine or whether it just happens to be happening. And on top of that, and this is where it really, we lose the nuance with just the headlines. These are mild cases. They recover. Um, If we weren't looking for this uh, in everybody, I'm not sure that we would find it. Um, and it just is something that I wish the CDC would have done a little better job of messaging that they're investigating it, right? Mm -hmm. I, I have no doubt they're investigating it along with everything else that they investigate when it comes to this, but to put out a press release over a weekend and say, well, there are relatively few and we're investigating them, uh, I see that they want to be transparent, and I applaud them for it. But it better be in context and with some interpretation before they start doing mm-hmm. that, because it just strikes fear in everybody's heart. Sure. Um, pardon that pun, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Oh.
0: <laughs> but so what you're so what I hear you saying is that, you know, they're looking for myocarditis, which could be naturally occurring, anyways, in somebody for other reasons. Is that if we weren't looking, we wouldn't potentially know people had it.
1: That's part of it. Absolutely. And then, you know, again, we have to be very careful about the terminology myocarditis that implies that the heart is infected. That's usually what we mean it for. But in this case, it really just means that the heart is a little bit inflamed. Well, myself and others, other investigators have shown that in a lot of disease states, whether it be sepsis, trauma, uh, cardiac surgery, other infections like RSV or influenza, there are times when the heart becomes inflamed as really just an innocent bystander because the blood itself is inflamed with immune complexes as it, as it whizzes by. And mm-hmm. if you measure it, you can find it. So if we took a vaccine that by definition wants to flare up your immune system to protect you, mm-hmm. well, it's not surprising that the heart sees some of those immune complexes whizzing by in a natural state and gets a little, little irritated whether it be Mm -hmm. from all these things like interleukins and interferon and all this stuff. So that's not, that's a naturally occurring event and it's not dangerous um, and it's well controlled for. And then to put it in perspective, we know darn well that COVID really does do a number on the heart if you get infected. And so Mm -hmm. the risk benefit on this is not even isn't even worth discussing because it's so Risky to not be protected. Mm
0: -hmm. So, so that you would say that that would also kind of go to kids who have any kind of complex congenital heart disease. You would even if they had a little bit of inflammation. You feel like that would be better than them getting COVID.
1: Hundred percent. Hundred percent. No doubt in my mind.
0: So, I want to talk about kids and masks. We're at a place where you know lots of parents are vaccinated, but. Our kids aren't, you know, a lot of our kids aren't. So, should our kids be wearing masks? Should, should they be wearing masks to school? And I was actually thinking about school, but school for us ends in Illinois here this week. So then it's summer camp. You know, what What are your thoughts on that?
1: Oh yeah, uh, I am. <laughs> masks. Yeah, you want to go jumping into the deep end of the pool on this, don't you? Let's Let's talk <laughs> right about <it. laughs> vaccines and masks. Well, masks actually are are a little bit easier to talk about. Um, first of all. Uh, we, I think, have probably messed up as a society in terms of masks more than anything else to do with this pandemic. Um, how this became a point of contention is beyond me. It's a piece of cloth and that's it. Um, now, let's not continue to make that uh, mistake with our children. So the evidence is very clear uh, now that uh Outdoors, so let's go easy, the summer camp. Kids should not have to wear masks at summer camp. Outdoor activities do not need a mask. The CDC has said it. They finally caught up with the data. Um, The number of outdoor transmissions of COVID in the world that can be truly documented now that we have a year and unfortunately hundreds of millions of, of cases to look at is minuscule. We are not spreading this virus to each other outside, period. So therefore, we should definitely not worry about kids being in summer camps with masks outside. Absolutely not. Now let's talk about schools. And then schools, um, we again also did not do our children any service. Um, the younger age groups so I'm talking about less than high school age, um, in hindsight, probably didn't need to have masks at all. Hmm. Um, and therefore we don't need to continue to do that. Um, And then high school students, now that they're eligible for vaccination, really fall into that category as well. One thing that everybody wants to talk about when it comes to risk of transmission in children who are unvaccinated, we are missing one major factor in that, which is the prevalence in the community. If we were uh, last whatever, take your pick, January in Los Angeles, when it was on fire with COVID. Yeah, I would say, you know what, probably a good idea to wear masks for kids, even if they're uh, you know, relatively protected, because the, the prevalence in the community is enormous. Well, mm-hmm. right now, thankfully for the vaccine, the prevalence in every single community in this country is now plummeting. Which means the small risk of transmission to the even smaller risk that it was going to be a a significant disease for a child to the even smaller risk of hospitalization for a child is getting so small. It's like, let's let kids be kids and let Mm -hmm. them run around without masks. I I just, I don't see that we need to continue that.
0: I'm so happy to hear you say that because my son is a middle schooler and ran his first track meet, he ran the 400 in a mask the first time. And I was like, <laughs> outside, right? And I was like, man, I don't think I, I mean, that would be tough. You know, it's one thing to be outside. It's another thing to run a track race in that. So in and, and subsequent, you know, they did end up changing that. But um, yeah, I think kids are, and my kids have even asked me, they're like, mom, are we going to have to wear masks in the fall? And I don't know how to answer that, right? Um, I'm hopeful that they won't.
1: I, I don't think they should. And, and this is where You know, if you, unfortunately, when you talk about masks, you end up talking about politics. Right. um, I will readily admit that I am a very leftward leaning liberal Democrat, but I also am willing to admit that if you live by the call of follow the science, then you have to follow that science all the way through. Right. The science is clear when it comes to the impact of vaccines, and now the science is clear with with the lack of impact of masks. So play that coin fairly, look at it both Mm -hmm. sides um, or else you're doing a disservice to what you say is a badge of honor. It's not, it's a mask. Let the Mm -hmm. kids play. It's fine. Yeah.
0: What about when we're, you know, going into grocery stores now, or I know I've noticed some places by me are optional. um, You know, people are going to walk in there with that are not vaccinated and not wear a mask. Um, How do we handle that?
1: Well, so um, if you're vaccinated, let's be clear, you have body armor, period. You're protected. This is not like, I use this a little bit like drunk driving, where if you choose to get behind the wheel of, the, of your car when you're drunk, you, you will harm others. Okay? Mm-hmm. If you are unvaccinated and you lie about your vaccination status and you walk into a crowded grocery store or a concert or anybody else, you're only harming yourself. We already see it across the country right now. Literally, the only people who are ending up in the hospital with COVID, in an ICU, on a ventilator with COVID are those who have refused to get vaccinated. The harm is on them. It's not on you as a vaccinated individual. You can't get it. You can't carry it. This risk of asymptomatic transmission, the vaccines are taking care of that. They just are. And you, the the risk of you carrying that home as a vaccinated individual to your unvaccinated child is the risk zero? No, but mm-hmm. nothing in life is zero, but it right. is insanely small. It is infinitesimally small. Um And it, it's, it's time to sort of get hold of our sort of COVID Stockholm syndrome and
0: mm-hmm. release
1: ourselves from this and enjoy life again.
0: Yeah. I think that that's such an important message. And you're right, you know, you do, it does feel a little bit weird, you know, when you're used to being masked or used to being, you know, and you go to a Mm -hmm. store without it, it, it does feel a little strange. And I think, but I think you're right, moving towards that is just, mentally healthy, I think, for us. And we're so privileged that we can even be in that place, right? That we have exactly. these tools to use. So kind of it c- going along with that topic is the idea of herd immunity that, you know, people talk about. And I think it's you're going to tell me that I might be right or wrong on this, but I know it's like a, theoretically like a percentage of people. I think I heard 70 percent. But I also know it's like probably more complex than that. So do you think that we'll get there? If so, when? And then the challenge is also that we have fewer people getting vaccinated. So how does that all work?
1: Yeah. So herd immunity is is a very real thing. Um, but if you dive into that, and okay, again, a little bit of uh, cautionary note here, I am not an epidemiologist. Mm-hmm. I'm not an infectious disease doc, right? But I've I think I've read enough about this to at least have some knowledge about it and one of the things is when you historically look at herd immunity it's applied to things like smallpox and polio so just a little reminder it took us hundreds of years to get to herd immunity and herd immunity for smallpox took us hundreds of years for polio it took us decades Um, it is not uh, something that can easily be achieved by any infectious disease Um, I don't know that we'll ever get to herd immunity with with COVID, nor do I think we have to. Mm -hmm. Um, The number, the percentage is going to be very unknown because we really have no idea how many people have actually been infected. So what I'd rather see is what we've just seen. We've actually achieved what we wanted to achieve, which is we've offloaded all the hospitals the numbers are in, are ridiculously small of people getting sick. So didn't we achieve what we wanted to achieve regardless of percentage of vaccination? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that should be the goal. And I think we're going to get to a point where there's containment, where this thing becomes an endemic, not pandemic, where it's, it's going to be here forever. COVID mm-hmm. will always be here. Um, but it'll be just like RSV. It'll be just like the flu. We'll, we'll be able to manage it. So, um, I don't think there's a goalpost for a percentage um, okay. that that we need to shoot for. Mm-hmm.
0: So you know, one of the other things that I've been thinking about lately, and I, I, I've read some about, is is um, you know, women and the way that the vaccine might affect their menstrual cycles. And you know, I I was thinking about that and then I and I read I've read some different people and then I saw it in a mainstream I think it was maybe in the New York Times or Washington Post don't quote me Um, and they read they wrote about it so I was like okay this is a thing like let me read about this and what's interesting about that is I've heard women say that they feel reticent to get their daughters vaccinated because of that and I had the vaccine and I noticed a difference in my cycle the month after I had it I'll just be super transparent about that um, which also made me read about it. So I'd love if you have any information that you can share to kind of dispel some fears and to just maybe talk through what could potentially be going on in our bodies.
1: Yeah. Um, so a couple of things. One, um, it is likely that that many people, many women will have some effect on their menstrual cycle from this. Um, in fact, if you look back, that happens with uh, the uh, it actually does happen within, with just the flu shot every year. It happens with the HPV vaccine. It's happened with um, some other vaccines in the past. Um, so that's not surprising. A couple of things. One, uh, every historical report from other vaccines and also from this vaccine is these are very temporary. And the best studies coming out now um from a variety of places this is literally becoming a, a wave showing number one, it has no impact on fertility. It has no impact on um, the children who are vaccin- whose mothers were vaccinated while they were pregnant. Um, it has no on pathology reports of unrelated surgeries where they looked at the uterine lining of women who have been vaccinated. There's absolutely no impact to it whatsoever. Um, so yeah, will it potentially in some women change their menstrual cycles? It might, it might for a very temporary amount of time. Um, and you know, again, I'm cautioned to say I am not female. So, but I, I will say that it appears as though those are minor compared to what we do know, which is a rather large percentage of pregnant women, um, end up. who who are with COVID end up in the hospital more so Mm -hmm. than uh, if they're not pregnant. Um, And a lot of women are impacted by COVID. And it does actually lead to uh, issues with uh, potential issues with fertility in both men and women after COVID, after the actual Mm -hmm. infection that doesn't occur with the vaccine. So again, uh, I, I would rather have something that I know is temporary and not not a, a significant issue.
0: Mm-hmm. That's that's such good information. Thanks for clarifying that. I also had read that you know it this vaccine affects our immune system, and you had your immune system is all over your body, right? So that could be another potential explanation, which is I think kind of what you said, anyways.
1: Yeah, and so. it, it turns out I didn't realize this, but until I read more about it, apparently. Um, the female uterus is a highly immunogenic organ. And so hmm. it's not surprising that it is impacted by a lot of things. I dove into this literature a little bit over the past several days just to answer these kind of questions for people. And turns out that people are actually predicting whether you're going to get severe flu this was like decades old research based purely on when you are infected in your menstrual cycle what I had no saying? idea
0: me right? either that's fascinating
1: but, but the the effect of of hormones both male and female on our immune system are enormous um, and so this is maybe another thing we're gonna learn from this pandemic
0: yeah that's really fascinating i you know one of the like one of the big issues I think that has come out of this pandemic is just the way we have messaging in our country, you know, (laughs) and I think fear has been a big driver on all sides, you know, for, for this and some probably more than others, but you know, you are such a, you walk such a, a middle road in your, in your writing and it's all data driven, you know, and like you said to me, I think as we were getting started to record, you know, the truth is always in the middle, you know, if you could, tell people collectively something to kind of help to to say, to dispel fear? What, what would be a message you're, you're like dying for people to hear based on this whole experience that you've been writing about?
1: Oh, uh, first of all, I'll go past any headline.
0: Yeah. I read a
1: fascinating report by uh, an economist and an anthropologist who looked at the way U.S. media, more than anywhere else in the world, um, highlights the fearsome uh, negative uh, hot headline. Hmm. Um, and it wasn't to be clear, it's not that it's, it was quote unquote fake news right No they're they're reporting the data. they're just using words that are more attention seeking mm-hmm. um, And when you actually read into the, the the bulk of the article, you realize, oh, it's not that fearful. it's okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then also, I wish that we could just give each other the grace and understanding that everybody travels that anxiety and fear journey on their own time, right? Mm-hmm. I am never going to be upset with somebody who wants every one of their family members to be masked throughout the, its entire calendar year.
0: If that mm-hmm. makes you
1: feel better, fine. Um, that's okay. Let's give each other some grace. Um, yeah. But let's also understand where the data is um, and let's really look at the evidence and if that helps you assuage those fears, then then let's follow that.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's such good advice. I think, and being willing to be open to changing as we learn more, you know, yeah. I think that that's another for me. That's a really important one, and that's why I love this conversation because it's like as we learn, as we know more, we do better. You know, in general in life, but especially with this,
1: yeah. you know, and it doesn't well. And one more point on that yeah. is. That doesn't mean we were wrong before. For me to say, now, look, we can get rid of masks. Okay. That doesn't mean we were wrong to have masks to begin with, Um, even for kids, right? Because we didn't know. So, of course, Mm -hmm. we're going to opt to be as protective as possible. Um, Just because you changed does not mean you were wrong to begin with. In fact, it just means you're more right now. That's all.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's a really good way to say it. So I'm wondering, like we've talked about COVID obviously medically, but I'd I'd love to know how it has impacted you like personally and then maybe as a physician too, but have there been any aha moments or something that you've really like learned or realized about yourself or even your work through this journey of the last
1: year? Yeah, um, I think the, the most is I, I didn't realize just how uh, – Anxious I was at the beginning until I got past it. Um, you know, I'm I'm used to living in an in an environment that I can't really control in an ICU setting, um, but also feeling like I had control. Um, mm-hmm. When the pandemic started, I just was like, I have no control over anything, and I know that I've had conversations with parents on the other side of that equation. And that's the thing they talk about the most when when their child is in the hospital. And I know you and I could have conversations about this forever, which is mm-hmm. you know, it's this desire to at least be able to control something because your life is spinning out of control. Yeah. Um, and I, that taught me a lot, myself personally, how much I need that. I need to at least feel like I'm under control. Um, and then also as I emerge out of this now, it's it's really what's important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my wife, my child, um, my enjoyment of life with them, that's that's ultimately the most important. And that that was, it was good to have a little bit of a, a pause to just say, um, why don't you take a look at yourself in the mirror and what what really gives you joy?
0: Mm-hmm. What's most important? Where are our priorities? I think that this has given us all an opportunity to To look at our priorities for sure. And I I feel very much the same as you. I think the pause, you know, it's like what really matters and it's a short life, you know, what are we doing with our time? Right. Right. And,
1: you know, I, I, I admit that I'm, I think I'm entering into a phase where um, at least my wife and I are going to be our own Individual economic stimulus package because we're <laughs> we're not going to be afraid to spend a little much extra money on vacation. We're not going to be afraid to buy the slightly better bottle of wine when we're out to dinner. And yeah, we'll have to keep ourselves in check just a little bit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's I think that's a great way to think about life. I think that's great. So you mentioned um, you know your role as a pediatric cardiologist and you know working with families and you know, you made me think of something that a lot of families kind of, I saw them write about on social media or just people I talked to is there, they said, you know, we're so used to living in the unknown. That's kind of how we live when you have a child with sort of an unknown future. Right. And that while COVID is hard and isolating, especially for people who are worried about their kids, uh, you know, they're kind of used to living with that. And so I thought that was really, so for some of those people, they didn't think it was as difficult as it maybe felt for other people who do live with a lot of certainty. Do you think that that could be true?
1: I I do. And I I think that that's really when you when you look at some of the social media reactions to anything, um, I find it interesting that one part of it is understanding how to live with some known or unknown but manageable risk right? Mm-hmm. Um, this whole idea that, well, the cases have to be zero before our kids can go back to school. That's that's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And it never was going to happen. And it never happened before this. Mm-hmm. And And it's interesting, you bring up a wrinkle that I didn't think of, which families that live with risk all the time, is there a difference now the way they see this risk? Because it could go either way. Now they right. see it's a new risk that I can't understand, or they go back to yeah, this is our normal life, right? The world is attacking my child from an infectious disease standpoint. So this is no different, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other is just this idea of people um, releasing themselves from that anxiety because Mm -hmm. when I hear people talking about, well, I don't want to wear a mask because I think this is a hoax or I don't want to get vaccinated because I don't think it's important, what I actually hear from them is, I'm just afraid of everything. And ultimately, look, I don't want myself or my kids to get sick and die, period. Mm-hmm. And if you get down to that sort of core, then you can start to see where they land on the, the stages of grief or the stages yeah. of fear. And, and I think you and I may have talked about this in the past. One of the most influential books I've ever read is Kubler-Ross's Stages of Grief. Mm-hmm. where people go through the anger, the bargaining, the denial. Um, and you can see that even in people's responses to the pandemic, right? You know, the bargaining. Well, it has to be 6% positivity, not 7% positivity before I start to release the mass. Ultimately, right. that's bargaining. Um, right. And you're just working your way towards acceptance.
0: Right. And I think, too, you know, one of the things that you learn when you're in the role that you're in in your job or the role that families are who are your patients, there is this, you learn that there is this element of surrender that you have to live in, right? You know, we don't know what every child's story is that goes through your ICU or what your own kid's story is gonna be. And I think for me personally, it made probably me less fearful of the pandemic because I've kind of lived that way. And so for example, my son who has muscular dystrophy, you know, we didn't know he the one who actually ended up getting COVID. We kept him in school. He was able to be in school. There was only 3 kids in his class. He wasn't masked because he won't keep a mask on, but we kind of decided we live in uncertainty anyways. He loves school. It makes him happy. There are so many awesome people there to support him. Like we're going to we live with that anyways. We're going to take that risk, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um and I'm sure some people thought I was crazy for doing that, but you know, when you kind of live with that, it just makes you look differently, I guess, at what is a risk to you. And then also back to what we talked about of, you know, quality of life, living, you know, enjoying what you've got, the time that you have.
1: Right. And I, I'd be interested did you know, when people, you made the comment, well, people probably looked at us like we were crazy for doing this, but did you get any actual blowback about it? Like, did people like basically tell you you're just doing something wrong or did they just?
0: No, but I would sense sometimes people were like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe you're sending him to school unmasked. You know, that, that, that I would do that. Um, or there were other parents who, you know, they, as soon as the pan, they took their kids out of school. And even if the school was open for them, they wouldn't send them. Um, so people didn't say things, but you know how you can kind of sense. Sometimes people are like, Oh, um,
1: because that's but, what i think we have to get out of right that right your decision is different than mine is different than anybody mm-hmm. else's and you know it it's okay can we can right. we just cut some cut people a little slack <laughs> right and, and listen to it? each
0: other yeah, yeah understand why you made that choice yeah what that means for you yeah um, i totally i totally agree with you um so I'm just wondering, kind of on the topic of your pediatric cardiology role, that your role is near and dear to my heart because my oldest son was born with a rare and complex heart defect. And you, there's so many stories of triumphs and tragedy that I know that you have in your mind, in your heart. Like, what, what has this job, this role, this lifestyle you've adop- adopted taught you?
1: What have these kids and these families taught you? Oh, my God. Um, they've taught me everything. Um they taught me how to be a better person, a better father. Um, they've taught me what is important in life. Um, I also go back to a novel I read decades ago, *The Pearl* by Steinbeck, mm-hmm. um, and how you know the the idea that this family found this perfect pearl, and there's a quote in there that says. You know, all days will be measured from this day. It was either before we found the pearl or after we found the pearl. And the, the lessons that families have taught me that in the end, as you said, this is a life that I've chosen for myself. Um, it will be a difficult day at work for me or a difficult call night. Um, but for families on the other side, it is the defining moment of their existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything will be judged before and after that. And it doesn't even have to necessarily be the most tragic. It is simply, well, it's before he went in for surgery versus after he went in for surgery, even if it's a great outcome,
0: um,
1: and never to take that for granted, never to take for granted, looking at life through somebody else's eyes, um, Mm -hmm. at, at their most vulnerable. Um, my mother was a pediatrician and she had a lifelong relationship with her patients well, I have, you know, a week to 10 days relationship, but it's the most significant time. Um, and that works for me uh, in terms of my short attention span. But it also <laughs> means that it's it's actually magnified that things that I do will make an impact more um, and to never forget that. Yeah, that's beautiful.
0: That's really, thank you for your service to families. I know that you've touched a lot of lives, so thank you for that. So this is the HeartStrong Podcast, and we're all about helping others and ourselves grow through the challenges of our lives. And so I'm wondering if you can tell me what practices or mindsets help you grow through the challenges that you face in your life.
1: Um, Well, I rely a lot on conversation. Um, talking through, talking through with my wife, talking through with my son, with my friends. Um, It always opens my mind to possibilities and um, just things that I hadn't thought of, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, I do rely on exercise as my meditation. Um, I love being out on a bike more than anything and just riding. Um, And then I guess um, it's just, Reading and being open to other viewpoints, um, those are the things that actually, I guess, get me through, if that's sort of the root mm-hmm. of that. Um,
0: yeah. It,
1: it's it, it's a journey that we all have to make, um, and nothing, is, nothing fits for everybody. And I don't know that I would have, I wonder if I would have been the same if I would have picked some other career choice. Probably not. I probably would be looking at life in a very different way, but I'm happy for it.
0: Hmm. Those are really cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. I know people are going to love to hear, you know, some of your different thoughts on COVID. I think it's going to be really, really helpful for families and making choices for their kids. So thank you so much and keep writing. We can't wait to see what you do next and to read that book.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. This has really been, this has been fun.
0: Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much to our guest, Dr. Paul Kekia, for joining me on the HeartStrong Podcast. Please rate and review the podcast on iTunes, and don't forget to share it with your friends. Thank you so much to our producer, Allison Cohen, our sound engineer, Michael Garcia, and I'm your host, Jessica Lindberg. Join us next week on the HeartStrong Podcast.